Hello, and welcome to The Worst Bestsellers, where sometimes we actually read good stuff. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And this is part two of our book year in review, where we'll talk about our best and worst of 2015 in the categories of adult literature and comic slash graphic novels. Yes, and that would be adult literature minus Hamilton, which... (laughs) if you missed the last episode, will make you very happy if you wish that we were talking about Hamilton more. Right, yeah, we've segregated our Hamilton content as much as possible into the Hamilton episode. We can't make promises that it's not going to just creep back in a little bit, but we'll do what we can. Also, if you somehow missed it two weeks ago, uh, we had part one of our best and worst of the year, and that's where we did our favorites and least favorite of children's slash middle grade and young adult literature. So go back and catch up on that if you're interested in that at all. And the same rules apply to this as they did to part one. So these are books that we read outside the podcast. uh, And also there are things that we read in the year 2015, not necessarily books that were published in 2015. Also, uh, although we are going to be ranking our top five favorite or best and the number one worst Worst sometimes just means least favorite uh, in the case of books where we've read a lot of things that we like and, you know, something's got to be at the bottom of the list. Right. So, uh, you know, you might have looked at this list online and been like, I can't believe that was your worst. And then you listen to us talk about it and it's like, oh, we actually liked it fine. It just happened to be like the least best thing that we read outside of the podcast. All right. And I guess we'll go ahead and get started. Um, I'll start with my number five adult book, which was The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo, uh, a.k.a. the KonMari Method. You've probably seen people talking about this online. Uh, If not, congratulations, I guess. It definitely swept my corner of the internet and also my workplace. We've all been talking about it. And the basic concept is just like, you have too much stuff and you should throw away most of it. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but (laughs) not really. (laughs) Um, There's some things in it that are a a little, like, it's it's tied into, like, she's Japanese, and it's kind of tied into Japanese religion, so there's some stuff in there about, like, recognizing the energy of your home and, like, that you should fold your socks a certain way so that your socks can rest at the end of the day and they're not tired. And so there's some things in it that I did not follow. I'm not following, like, the full-on KonMari method because some of it sounds a little exhausting. It's pro- I mean, it probably works for if you do it, but even just sort of taking what I chose from the method, it just really did make me feel a lot better to get rid of, like, a bunch of shoes that were kind of cute, but I don't wear them that much, and it, I got rid of them, just things along that nature. It just kind of gave me permission to get rid of stuff that, you know, is perfectly serviceable. I could still use it, but I just wasn't. And a lot of that stuff went to Goodwill, and I feel good about that. So, hooray. Life-changing magic. Yeah, everyone I know was talking about it, and I actually have to admit that I was kind of afraid to read it because I live in squalor. I'm just such a slob. I'm such a slob. And I try to be better. I just clutter surrounds me. I can't help it. And like, I I feel like just (laughs) 
just the act of reading that book, I feel would be so judgmental against myself. I don't think so. She's very, she has a very like chipper understanding tone of like that it's easy for us all to get carried away. And I forgot to say like the central concept of it is that you should only keep things that spark joy in you. So it it puts this like really positive spin on it of like being aware of what what objects are actually like benefiting your life and what's just like stuff. And I mean as I say this I'm right now I'm surrounded obviously by a pile of books that I'm about to read but then just like, I'm not living in a full-on KonMari home, but even just the baby <laughs> steps that I took, uh, I felt good about them. So, just to start off, I read seven grown-up books this year, so there's only one that's not on this list. <laughs> <laughs> kind of scraped the bottom of the barrel here. So, my number five favorite best book that I read this year was Going Clear by Lawrence Wright. Uh, We talked a little bit about this when we did our Dianetics episode. It's uh, the big sort of expose book that he wrote about um, Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard and all of that mess going into it, like the history of it and how it operates now and how sketchy it is. And uh, it was really interesting. I had known a little bit about Scientology before, mostly from what I learned from South Park. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh and also like my, my newspaper staff and I were obsessed with Scientology for like a hot minute in college in like a jokey way before actually the the South Park episode happened but yeah it was it was kind of horrible to read in an enlightening kind of way as we said when we did that episode I would recommend it yeah I read this also this year I really enjoyed it but I didn't put it on my list because I saw Kate had it Um, So my number four was Pioneer Girl, the Annotated Autobiography by Laura Ingalls Wilder and Pamela Smith-Hall. I'll say right up front, Laura Ingalls Wilder is my problematic fave. Um, I know that there's been a lot of, you know, deserved criticism of her books for being kind of manifest destiny propaganda and having negative parts about American Indians and, you know... Things of that nature that you would expect from, like, an old-timey pioneer-type book. But that said, I I loved those books when I was a kid. Um, I loved them. I still like them. Even having, like, read and, you know, agreed with criticisms of them, there's still so much at their core that I just really like. And so this is, as you can tell from the title, the annotated version of Pioneer Girl, which is actually kind of Laura Ingalls Wilder's rough draft of what would go on to become. I think it ended up sort of getting divided into the first few Little House books. And she had originally intended it as a memoir, and it was more for an adult audience. And so this includes that, along with letters between her and her daughter, Rose, who was a a writer and was really instrumental in getting this published in its form that we know. And so we see how Rose saw that, like, well, if you turn this into a novel and then you can kind of tighten this up or, like, whatever, and and if you fictionalize it, you can make this smoother and target it towards children, and then, you know, children would be more interested in this, maybe. And and then there's also, like, Pamela Smithell, the historian who annotated it, just went in so deep and there's so many other like letters and records connected and it's such a fascinating look at what her life was like both at the time that she lived it and at the time she was writing about it 
And it, it does, like, there were parts, like, there was a story that's it's in the long winter that's been criticized because uh, an American Indian chief comes to town to warn them of, of the long winter that's coming, basically, and it's been criticized as being sort of, like, stereotypical cliche or whatever but then there's historical records of like that literally did happen like that apparently which isn't to say that you you can still present something that actually happened in a way that is offensive but just in a way that Laura was aware and she was like writing to different tribal councils to try to get details so that she could make it her portrayal of the American Indians more truthful because she knew that she was relying on her memory so there's like letters written back to her from various like tribal authorities at the time that she was writing and like the 1920s 30s ish now I don't remember what year anyway if you are a fan of Laura Ingalls Wilder and those books it's a really fascinating and really interesting history if you're not a fan of them you probably don't care it's it's probably just gonna be like oh my god this is more information than I ever wanted about this (laughs) But it was how much information I did want. Sounds good. Uh, my number four best book of the year for adults was The Martian by Andy Weir. I actually first heard about this book on our friend podcast. <laughs> I don't know how podcasts are related. I think our podcast would be friends. Totally. Um, anyway, Bellwether Friends. Mm-hmm. Um hosted by Anna and Carolyn. They had both read it and were talking about it. And it sounded interesting, so I put it on my library hold list. And actually, I had just started reading it the week that they announced that they were, like, the movie deal, and they were casting Matt Damon and all that. Um, so it was interesting timing. Um, or maybe maybe I had just started reading it right before the trailer came out. I don't know. I had just started reading it around the time that it started to get super hyped up, um, which was great because then, like, a lot of other people I know started reading it so we could talk about it. But it's really interesting. If you haven't seen the movie or you somehow haven't heard about it, essentially it's the story of an astronaut who's on a Mars mission who, because of complications when they're leaving Mars, which they're doing early, he gets left behind by the rest of his crew. And due to how far space is and how long it takes to build spacecraft, he figures out that he'll have to find a way to survive there for several years before they can send another crew to come get him or before he can meet up with the next scheduled crew who are coming. And it's it's funny. It's funnier than I thought it was going to be. It's very funny. Yeah. It's <laughs> I, I You know, I, I heard that and I thought like oh it's gonna be like a crazy you know sci-fi but no it's just like it's written with so much humor towards the situation and it was really just interesting from a a science dummies perspective I could still follow it and it was great it was a really quick read and I definitely enjoyed it and would 100% recommend it and I did finally see the movie a couple weeks ago too (laughs) (laughs) at this rate I'll see Mockingjay in you know January or February (laughs) But I I also thought the movie was a really good adaptation, so you should see that too. I also enjoyed the book and the movie. Uh, My one one warning that I will say is I've read the print book. I've heard from other people who listened to the audiobook that it kind of dragged, and I think it's partly because the book includes a, a lot of, like, his scientific calculations that he's doing to solve his problems. And if you're reading it, especially if you don't actually understand math, like I don't, you kind of just skim and you're like, I get it. He did math. But if you're listening to the audiobook, you got to listen to him being like X times Y, like whatever, whatever. So if that doesn't sound appealing to you, maybe go for the print on that one. 
Uh, all right. So that is The Martian, which is Kate's number four that I piggybacked onto. And my number three was Between the World and Me by ta Coates. I'm sure you heard about this. It won awards. It's great. Um, I will say it's one that I, I wanted to read and... I kind of felt like, oh, I got to kind of brace myself to read this. It's going to be a downer. It's going to be like, eh. And, I mean, it, it's very moving. It's very powerful. But I, I enjoyed reading it. I read it quickly. Like, his prose is very beautiful and it's very compelling. And I would recommend it if you haven't already read this before. I'm not even going to tell you what it's about because I feel like everyone's heard about this by now. If you haven't, just Google it. It's fine. It's true. I have that on my hold list, actually. Yeah. I have a lot of things on my hold list, and they're all going to come in at once, because that's what always happens, no matter <laughs> what spot I am in line. I think I was like 26th in line for that one. Anyway, <laughs> my number three book uh, for adults is We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Um, this is probably more of a novella than a book, but I think it's it's advertised as her her last novel before she died, but it's pretty short. So Shirley Jackson, most people know her because she wrote the short story, The Lottery, which you probably had to read in high school. She also wrote The Haunting of Hill House, which went on to become the movie The House on Haunted Hill, and then the remake of the movie The House on Haunted Hill. And she she writes these like really twisted, creepy, social commentary-y things that are, they have, they frequently have these messages that are very obvious, but are told in such a way that it's not, it's not preachy or messagey. It's just really creepy and fucked up. And this is no difference, uh, different. It's, um, the story about a family. It's a story about the Blackwood family and it's narrated by Mary Cat or Mary Catherine Blackwood, who's 18 at the time. The Blackwoods live in this, like, giant house on the edge of town, completely isolated from the village, because several years beforehand, at a family, Blackwood family dinner, the entire family, the parents, the aunts, and the children, the aunt, their, um, Mary Cat's brother, uh, were all killed over dinner by eating sugar that was laced with arsenic. And the only people who survived were Mary Cat, her sister Constance, and her uncle Julian, who survived. He was actually poisoned that night, but he did survive. Uh, Constance also survived. And Mary Cat had not been at the dinner because she was being punished, so she was sent to bed early. The town thought that Constance was the one who poisoned everyone, but she was acquitted because they couldn't find any evidence that she actually did it. But still, the town decided that she did it and has ostracized the family ever since. There's magic in this book. Mary Cat can do these magical things, and it's it's really interesting. I don't want to give away, as usual, all of the twists of the book. It's short. It's creepy but not necessarily scary it's very twisty it's very interesting and i would definitely recommend that you read it if you haven't already uh my number two adult book is the unspeakable by megan dom it's 
It's the kind of book that I am very prone to love and that a lot of people don't like. It's a collection of personal essays by a woman about her life as a woman. Um, she talks very honestly about topics like not wanting to have children and her relationship with her mother and it's and her father and her various boyfriends and it's just very honest. I liked it a lot. I related to it a lot, but but not all of the things in it. Um I read this with my awesome All Lady Book Club, and we all, I think, really enjoyed it and all found various aspects of this that were, like, you know, the kind of thing where, like, oh, I never knew anybody else felt that way, like, that kind of situation. I'm also going to say that my book club read Lean In this year, and I'm just going to repeat my small rant from last year, which is that people keep talking shit about Lean In, and they haven't read it, and it's not actually what people think it is based on the book jacket. So just in our year 2015... Maybe read Lean In if you haven't yet. I'm throwing that back out there. But also read The Unspeakable. And I will say that I said that I read only seven grown-up books this year. Lean In was the seventh. (laughs) 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 Since Renata talked about it last year, I didn't put it on my list. But I did really like it, and she's absolutely right. When people talk about Lean In, they talk about what they read on the book jacket and not actually what the book is about. Yeah. Lean In. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for my... Number two book that I've read this year. I'm kind of grouping all of these things together. I read a whole lot of M.R. James short stories, like probably two full books filled with um, collected stories and then a handful of other stories on the Internet. So I'm just kind of putting that as my broad grouping of this. So I I had heard of M.R. James before. Uh, He's an English horror writer and... I read a comic, which we'll link to somewhere on this post on worstbestsellers.com, that was drawn of one of his stories. And it was interesting enough to me that I decided that I wanted to go out and read more by him. And I just read, like, everything. It's really good. And it's really interesting. As a fan of modern horror, I like reading less modern horror because... There's much less, like, suspension of disbelief is just so much faster, and I'm into it. Like, in one of the stories, it's about this, like, haunted etching of a house. And legit, after the guy realizes, like, oh, the etching changes every night, like, it's something clearly is going on. He just goes to his bro and is like, I have this haunted painting. This is why it's haunted. And the guy's like, oh, okay, cool. Like, let's go figure out what to do about it. It's none of this, like, oh, what are you talking about? Ghosts aren't real. That's bullshit. Da, 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 da. Like, just, he's like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, let's go investigate your haunted painting and figure out why it's haunted. But his stories are really creepy. Um, they're very classic. A lot of them, I think, have been adapted into other mediums. I know at least there's a bunch on Amazon Prime of BBC adaptations of his stories. But it's just, like, really old-school, creepy ghosts and demons and weird things and psychological stuff it was a lot of fun to read it was my beach reading for the majority of this year and um if you're a fan of horror and you've somehow missed this guy as i have up until recently i'd absolutely recommend it a lot of the stuff is available you know for free on the internet because of it's in the public domain yeah cool I probably will not read that because I'm a scaredy baby. Yes. No, you shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're not, you should read them, it sounds like. Um, All right. And now my number one favorite adult book of the year, which I already talked about on the Hamilton episode, but I'm going to talk about it some more because you can't stop me. 
Uh, it's Lafayette and the Somewhat United States by Sarah Vowell. Sarah Vowell is an author. I, I love her. I've loved her since I read her essay collection when I was in college. I read The Partly Cloudy Patriot, and it was one of the first things I'd ever read that I was like, oh, this is like me. Like, this person has the same basic worldview as I have. And so I've always loved the way that she combines, like, this very specific nerdiness about history with, like, her personal narrative and her personal viewpoint and sort of a cautious, grumpy optimism about American culture and pop culture. It's, it's like, a very specific thing that she's doing, and I'm way into it. And I feel like her last few books, she's moved away from that a little bit. And the last few um, Unfamiliar Fishes and The Wordy Shipmates, they were a little bit more just like, this is a, a sort of normal history book with a few jokes in it. And it, it wasn't as personal to me in the way that her earlier books are. And I feel like Lafayette and the Somewhat United States is returning to that. And that is my favorite thing about Sarah Vaughan. I'm so happy. And also, of course, it does tie back to my current obsession of Hamilton, so I'm extra happy. Um, and I did talk about this in the Hamilton episode, uh, but if you did not listen to that, and basically it, it is about the Marquis de Lafayette, who was a, a general in the Revolutionary War, and it's more specifically about after the Revolutionary War in 1824, well, after the war in 1824, he returned to the United States and was it was kind of um, almost like a victory lap. I don't know. And he was just beloved by everyone. And it was talking about their kind of nostalgia for the Revolutionary War and what he represented. And it's very it's very funny. It's very tied into some current events now. It's great. And I'm going to read to you a little bit about when she is visiting a the Battle of Brandywine reenactment site and that was uh in the Revolutionary War Lafayette had an important role in it and now she's there getting ready to write about the reenactment and she's met some people and here's what's happening as Webster and I talk more and more of her comrades Mostly smiling, graying gentlemen wearing suspenders keep filing in to sit in the pews and join the conversation. I tell them that I'm researching a book on Lafayette and that I'm planning to catch the Battle of Brandywine reenactment down the road. Turns out that's why they all showed up today, to chat up war enthusiasts and make them feel bad. It's an opportunity, Webster says, to say that war is not the only solution. One of the other friends introduces himself as Christopher Densmore, a curator at Friends Historical Library at Swarthmore, the nearby Quaker College. He says, we understand our history as war. It is pretty clear by the way he's looking at me that by we, he means you, i.e. we non-Quaker Americans. The other friends nod their heads in vexed agreements. Densmore laments, if you go to the history section of the Barnes & Noble, it's all war. First of all, let's not forget about cod. I checked, and the book subtitled A Biography of the Fish That Changed the World is in stock at the two nearby B&Ns in Exton and at the Concord Mall. And for good reason. It's one of the better cod bios in print. I do not think that there can ever be enough books about anything, and I say that knowing that some of them are going to be about Pilates. 
the more knowledge, the better, seems like a solid rule of thumb, even though I have watched enough science fiction films to accept that humanity's unchecked pursuit of learning will end with robots taking over the world. While I have come to the Brandywine Valley to trace the soldier steps, I don't think I see American history as war. I see it as a history of argument, a daily docket of estrangement and tiffs, big and grand like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, big and stupid like the impeachment of President Clinton, or small and civil like what is happening at this moment with these strangers in these pews. Um, I, I chose that, I mean, partly because I, I think it captures what I'm talking about, her blend of personal narrative and history and whatever. But also for the shout out to Cod, which I think, as we all know, is Dwayne the, Red, Dwayne the Rock Johnson's favorite food. So <laughs> I hope he has read that book. I had to mute my microphone because I was literally laughing <laughs> Shout out to Cod. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't read this one yet. I'm in, I'm glad to hear that it's more in the vein of her um, previous books because The Wordy Shipmates was actually the last one that I've read of hers. I didn't read the one that came after it because it was such a slog for me to get through it. Yeah. And I think now that you pointed that out, like that's absolutely the reason is that it was less personal and more just like kind of a history and there are some jokes thrown in. So I'm excited to get this one. Yeah. I asked for it for Christmas, and if I don't get it, then I'll probably just get it myself um, to add to my Sarah Vowell library. Hooray. But, yay. All right. Um, So my number one best book for adults that I read this year is actually three books. Um, (laughs) You rule bender. (laughs) I read the Southern Reach trilogy by James Vandermeer, um, which is a kind of sci-fi weird horror trilogy of of novels that he published last year and I just kind of grouped them all together because it really is sort of a a history and a story of the same thing at three different points from three and a half different perspectives let's say they are all quite different despite sort of being around the same topic but they're, they're very interesting I read them all in like a weekend like I I I think one of them was on sale for like $1.99 on Kindle. So I bought it. And then that's how they get you because I bought the next two at full price. (laughs) (laughs) Reminder that if you purchase any Amazon links uh, through our website, we get some some money back and we can use that to support our podcast habit. Yeah. And thank you to those of you who already have. Uh, so the the three books are about this place in the United States called Area X, which uh, several years before the trilogy begins had gone from this smallish town on the coast. This like bubble thing appeared around it. Um, everything inside of it was cut off and it was completely, no one knew what was happening Nobody could do any, like, overhead views of it. Everything was just gone. You know, it was encircled in this. Um, and this facility was was constructed, uh, Southern Reach, in order to discover what happened, why it happened, what's going on under the bubble. They would send these teams of scientists in, and some of them came back, and some of them didn't come back, and some of them came back with cancer, and some of them came back crazy, and some of them came back having murdered everyone else in their group. And they continued to do these different tests by sending these different groups of scientists in. 
so the first book, which is called Annihilation, is from the point of view of one of the scientists on one of the trips inside of Area X. Our main character, who we only know as the biologist, is there because, well, she is a biologist and she is super interested in um, ecosystems and watching things grow and evolve and change, but also because her husband had been on one of the previous expeditions and came back with, like, riddled with cancer, like all the other people on his expedition. And she's curious as to what happened and kind of cheats her way inside of the expedition so that she can go to Area X and see for herself. They're really creepy. Um, The second book takes place at Southern Reach, the facility that explores Area X. And a bureaucrat is there who has just been moved to that um, by his mother and some other higher-ups in the CIA. He kind of fucked up a bunch of field assignments, so this is sort of his last-ditch kind of, we're going to give this to you and hopefully you won't screw it up too badly. And um, he is there right after the group from Annihilation has disappeared. One of the people in the group in Annihilation is the former director of the facility. So he's stepping in as a temporary director and begins to find out all sorts of weird things that are going on, weird things that have been shadily done within the organization and within sort of the CIA as a whole, and weird things that are starting to happen emanating out of Area X. I won't tell you what the third book's about because it spoils a lot of things from the end of the second book, but... You should read them if you like creepy sci-fi things. They're super interesting, super compulsively readable. Uh, Like I said, I read them all in like a weekend and bought two of them because I looked at the library hold list and I was like, I can't wait. I'd be number five on the list. It might take weeks. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I'm going to read a little bit from the first book, Annihilation. This is the biologist and her team are exploring Area X, including this big circular structure within the ground like a a tunnel down into the ground that she can't help but refer to as the tower and they are within it trying to figure out why it's not on any of their maps and what it could possibly be look the surveyor said training her flashlight down into the archway we hurried over and stared past her adding our own illumination A stairway did indeed lead down, this time at a gentle curve with with much broader steps, but still made of the same materials. At about shoulder height, perhaps five feet high, clinging to the inner wall of the tower, I saw what I first took to be dimly sparkling green vines progressing down into the darkness. I had a sudden absurd memory of the floral wallpaper treatment that had lined the bathroom of my house when I had shared it with my husband. Then... As I stared, the vines resolved further, and I saw that they were words, in cursive, the letters raised about six inches off the wall. Hold the light, I said, and pushed past them down the first few steps. Blood was rushing through my head again, a roaring confusion in my ears. It was an act of supreme control to walk those few paces. I couldn't tell you what impulse drove me, except that I was the biologist, and this looked oddly organic. If the linguist had been there, perhaps I would have deferred to her. Don't touch it, whatever it is, the anthropologist warned. I nodded, but I was too enthralled with the discovery. 
If I'd had the impulse to touch the words on the wall, I would not have been able to stop myself. As I came close, did it surprise me that I could understand the language the words were written in? Yes. Did it fill me with a kind of elation and dread intertwined? Yes. I tried to suppress the thousand new questions rising up inside of me. In as calm a voice as I could manage, aware of the importance of that moment, I read from the beginning, aloud. Where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner? I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms that... And then the darkness took it. Words? Words? The anthropologist said. Yes, words. What are they made of? The surveyor asked. Did they need to be made of anything? The illumination cast on the continuing sentence quavered and shook. Where lies the strangling fruit became bathed in shadow and light as if a battle raged for its meaning. Give me a moment. I need to get closer. Did I? Yes, I needed to get closer. What are they made of? I hadn't even thought of this, though I should have. I was still trying to parse the lingual meaning, had not transitioned to the idea of taking a physical sample. But what relief at the question, because it helped me fight the compulsion to keep reading, to descend into the greater darkness and keep descending until I had read all the word, all there was to read. Already those initial phrases were infiltrating my mind in unexpected ways, finding fertile ground. So I stepped closer, peered at where lies the strangling fruit, I saw that the letters connected by their cursive script were made from what could have looked to the layperson like rich green fern-like moss, but in fact was probably a type of fungi or other eukaryotic organism. The curling filaments were all packed very close together and rising out from the wall. A loamy smell came from the words along with an underlying hint of rotting honey. The miniature forest swayed almost imperceptibly, like seagrass in a gentle ocean current. Other things existed in this miniature ecosystem. Half hidden by the green filaments, most of these creatures were translucent and shaped like tiny hands embedded by the base of the palm. Golden nodules capped the fingers on these hands. I leaned in closer like a fool, like someone who had not had months of survival training or even studied biology. Someone tricked into thinking the words could be read. I was unlucky, or was I lucky? Triggered by a disturbance in the flow of air, a nodule in the W chose that moment to burst open and a tiny spray of golden spores spewed out. I pulled, pulled back, but I thought I had felt something enter my nose, experienced a pinprick of escalation in the smell of rotting honey. Unnerved, I stepped back even further, barring some of the surveyor's best curses, but only in my head. My natural instinct was always for concealment. Already, I was imagining the psychologist's reaction to my containment, if revealed to the group. Yep. Creepy. Very creepy. All right. And now we'll move on to our worst adult books of the year. Um, this this book was not terrible, but it is a recurring problem I have which is I really like stand-up comedy and stand-up comedians. And whenever a stand-up comedian puts out a book, I want to read it. But then I'm almost always disappointed because I'm like, oh, this is like mostly just your stand-up act written down with some padding. And I already saw your stand-up act and it's funnier when you perform it because that's part of stand-up is your delivery. And now I've got the jokes without the delivery. But I, it's a lesson I have to keep learning. 
because every once in a while I do like them. Um, like, I read Aziz Ansari's book this year, and I did like that because it, it was pretty different from his stand-up, although there were some similarities. But there was a lot of value added to the book, I thought. But my worst book of the year is I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV by Maz Jobrani, who I like. He's funny. The book is fine, but it's not as funny as his stand-up, so what's the point? Um, but I'll just, I'll read you just a little bit from the introduction. And, it, you know, it's pretty funny. It's just not as good as a stand-up. What can I say? Hello there. Thank you for picking up my book. Maybe you picked it up because you recognize me from a television show. Isn't that the guy from Better Off Ted and Knights of Prosperity and Life on a Stick? Whatever happened to those shows? What happens to actors when their shows get canceled? Well, reader, we write books. That's what happens when our shows get canceled. Maybe you've picked up this book because you saw the word terrorist on the cover and thought, I always knew that guy was a terrorist, always trying to convince the American public that he's a stand-up comedian. What a dirty piece of scum. He was never that funny anyway. Or maybe you're related to me and you thought, what the hell, Maz wrote a book? I wonder if he mentions me. I better buy a copy and check it out. Whatever the reason, thank you. Writing a book isn't easy. I'm a comedian, so I'm used to writing a few lines of comedy each day. But when I was faced with writing 200 pages, I was intimidated. I immediately began to think of ways to cheat. What if I double-spaced everything? Or maybe I could add 100 page pages of pictures. That would really help move this baby along. However, once I began writing, it started to flow. After all, this is a story about my life. Who is more qualified to write about me than me? I've been studying me for 42 years. I'm an expert on me. I've got a PhD in me. I wrote the book on me. Literally. And what a life it's been. A classic immigrant story. A kid from the streets of Tehran moving to the streets of Los Angeles. Which nowadays is packed with so many Iranians that it's basically like living back on the streets of Tehran. Along the way, I've experienced a revolution, a hostage crisis, and male pattern baldness. So... It's fine. It's fine. All right. My worst book of the year, I actually didn't like, like, basically at all. Mm. Um, it was The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins, which I basically read because it was super zeitgeisty. Mm -hmm. It was like the, the new book. Gone Girl. Yeah, The New Gone Girl was how everybody talked about it. And it was like the book and... Interestingly, not a lot of, like, the library people I follow on Twitter were reading it. But a lot of the other people that I follow were reading it. I think, I think all the library people were like, oh, it's the new Gone Girl. That's, like, all we need to know about it so yeah. that we can tell patrons about it. That Probably. was my take on it. That should have been my first clue that I shouldn't have bothered with it. But it was, like, on sale on, on Amazon or something. And there was a really long list, a really long wait list at the library. And I knew that I had to read a couple more grown-up books <laughs> so that I couldn't fill <laughs> this list. So I bought it, and I read it, and I read it very quickly, and I just didn't like it, probably for the same reasons that I wouldn't like Gone Girl if I had read that, which I hadn't. But just essentially, uh, it's a story about three different women told from their points of view. We have Rachel who is an unemployed slovenly alcoholic whose husband left her 
and who lost her job afterwards because she couldn't stop drinking and who is living with her friend who doesn't know that she has lost her job because she lies about it and gets on the train and just rides the train back and forth all day to hide the fact that she's not working anymore and also that she's drinking so much from her roommate. While she rides the train, she looks at the backs of the houses where she used to live with her ex-husband and a couple houses down from her old house is the house of this couple who in her head she comes up with names for and comes up with a whole backstory for and does not know them, does not just seize them and makes up a story like we so often do when we people watch, except she gets really into it. And when she sees the woman cheating on her husband, she feels personally betrayed. And then not long after that, the woman disappears and she decides that she is going to help the police figure out what happened to her. Um, Because she's like, oh, I have this information that she was having an affair that the police might not know. We also have Megan, who is the actual woman who lives in that house. And we get her side of the story about what her life was like in the year or so leading up to her disappearance. And then our other point of view is Anna, who is Rachel's ex-husband's new wife, who hates Rachel because she's a slovenly drunk who was mean to her husband. And Anna was having an affair with Rachel's husband. And that's how, that's why their marriage dissolved. And it's just... Rachel trying to help solve this crime, Anna being mad at Rachel for trying to ruin her life because part of the problem with Rachel's marriage was that she couldn't get pregnant. Um, And Anna did get pregnant, like basically immediately, I think before she had even married Rachel's ex-husband. So she's bitter about that. And it's just like, they're so unlikable. They're just so unlikable. And I know that's hip. I know it's cool to have unlikable narrators, but I like read this out of spite. Like I wanted to know what happened and I didn't care about anyone. And they were just all alternately so terrible and so pathetic that I, if I hadn't been having a really slow day with nothing else to do, I probably wouldn't have even finished this. Hmm. Anyway, I'm going to read you a little bit about Rachel so you can see how sad and pathetic and annoying she is. And I know, like, I feel bad saying this. Whenever I say something bad about a woman, I feel terrible because (laughs) I try to be one of those people who doesn't say negative things about other women, including celebrities. Like, I just kind of take it as my personal point of view that, like... We're team lady. Yeah, yeah. You know, team lady. Like, even when people are hating on, like, Miley Cyrus or... Even women who do do legitimately bad things, like, the rest of the world is going to spend time condemning them and talking about them and talking shit about them. I don't need to add my voice to that, you know? Um, But, oh, these women are so annoying. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I'll read a little bit from this. There's been a problem on the line. The 556 fast train to Stoke has been canceled, so its passengers have invaded my train, and it's standing room only in the carriage. I fortunately have a seat, but by the aisle, not next to the window, and there are bodies pressed against my shoulder, my knee, invading my space. 
I have an urge to push back, to get up and shove. The heat has been building all day, closing in on me. I feel as though I'm breathing through a mask. Every single window has been opened, and yet, even while we're moving, the carriage feels airless, a locked metal box. I cannot get enough oxygen into my lungs. I feel sick. I can't stop replaying the scene in the, the coffee shop this morning. I can't stop feeling as though I'm still there. I can't stop seeing the looks on their faces. I blame Jess. Uh, Jess is the fake name she gave Megan when she was spying on her through the train. I was obsessing this morning about Jess and Jason, about what she'd done and how he would feel, about the confrontation they would have when he found out and when his world, like mine, was ripped apart. I was walking around in a daze, not concentrating on where I was going. Without thinking, I went into the coffee shop that everyone from Huntington whitely uses. I was through the door before I saw them, and by the time I did, it was too late to turn back. They were looking at me, eyes widening for a fraction of a second before they remembered to fix smiles on their faces. Martin Miles with Sasha and Harriet, a triumvirate of awkwardness, beckoning, waving me over. Rachel, Martin said, arms outstretched, pulling me into a hug. I wasn't expecting it. My hands were caught between us, fumbling against his body. Sasha and Harriet smiled, gave me tentative air kisses, trying not to get too close. What are you doing here? For a long moment, I went blank. I looked at the floor. I could feel myself coloring and realizing it was making it worse. I gave a false laugh and said, interview, interview. Oh, Martin failed to hide his surprise, while Sasha and Harriet nodded and smiled. Who's that with? I couldn't remember the name of a single public relations firm, not one. I couldn't think of a property company either, let alone one that might realistically be hiring. I just stood there, rubbing my lower lip with my forefinger, shaking my head, and eventually Martin said, Top secret, is it? Some firms are weird like that, aren't they? Don't want you saying anything until the contracts are signed and it's all official. It was bullshit and he knew it. He did it to save me and nobody bought it, but everyone pretended they did and nodded along. Harriet and Sasha were looking over my shoulder at the door. They were embarrassed for me. They wanted a way out. I'd better go and order my coffee, I said. I don't want to be late. Martin put his hand on my forearm and said, It's great to see you, Rachel. He was, his pity was almost palpable. I'd never realized, not until the last year or two of my life, how shaming it is to be pitied. Aww. So, yeah. It's just so miserable. They're all so miserable, and I just don't want to read about that level of misery. Legit. Well, how about if you turn it around by telling us about your favorite comic of the year? Well, your fifth favorite comic of the year. I can do that. All right. My fifth favorite comment. Comment. Tell, All right. Well, you can have one comment and five comics <laughs> and one other solar body. <laughs> well, actually, interestingly enough, I did go see a play this week called Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which was fantastic. I think by the time this episode goes up, it's running. Um, Cambridge will be over. But if by some chance it is not, you should go see it. It was really intense and really good. Uh, the cast recording is available on iTunes, but it's one of those shows where like the music and the lyrics and the book aren't necessarily great on their own, but something about the way they combine with the acting and the sets and the experience of being there makes it really incredible. So the cast recording might not quite capture it if you haven't 
seen it yourself. But there's my comment recommendation for you. Okay, great. And now a comic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, So my fifth favorite comic of the year was Captara by Chip Zdarsky and Kagan McLeod. Captara is a book that Chip kept advertising as gay saga (laughs) and it it kind of is and kind of not so Kiptera is about a space exploration um it's kind of a space opera and it stars Keith Kanga is the lead character he is not thrilled to be on this trip it's kind of implied that he fucked up a lot on earth and his aunt who is in charge of the program put him on the ship to get him off the planet and he's just like he's very good at what he does but he's very cowardly and he's pretty lazy and he just wants to be far away from earth so when their ship crashes most of the other people on the ship are killed and he is rescued by one of the natives of the planet and brought back to essentially their governing body. And they talk about how they're going to work real hard to get him home. And he's kind of like, uh, don't worry about it that much. He's very funny. The other characters are funny. The art in this book is off the walls. <laughs> Kagan McLeod, like, I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Like Chip, was saying at, at Heroes Con that he'll just tell Kagan, like, draw super racist homophobic Smurfs. Hmm. And they're, they're all so weird. <laughs> and it's great. I definitely recommend it. It's so funny. I laugh out loud at least once every issue. I think there's only like four or five issues so far and I think the trade is set to come out soon-ish if it's not already out. I think this month I saw in the MilkFed newsletter but you should definitely read it. It's very funny. It's a lot of fun. Go for it. Cool. All right well my number five comic is All New X Factor and this is definitely a situation where like, my own whimsical judging is coming into play, because I'm sure that I read comics that were technically better than this, but did any of those other comics have shirtless Gambit hanging out with kittens? No, they did not, and so X-Factor took their spot on the list. If you're not familiar, X-Factor in this incarnation is basically, like, a private superhero team that's run by a a Google equivalent called Serval Industries, basically. So it's it's kind of a cool concept. And I think there's three volumes of this in trade and then it got canceled. I think it was really sort of getting to the point where they were telling some really cool stories after they'd gotten their kind of setup built up and then it got canceled. So whatever but it's it's gambit and quicksilver and polaris and danger the incarnated danger room and it's just really weird and funny and gambit hangs out shirtless with his cats like a lot so if you're into that check out all new x factor by peter david and uh the illustrator in the first volume is giuseppe Camancoli and lee luridge perhaps and he, they do a real great job with their shirtless gambit. Thanks for pandering <laughs> to me, Renata. 
Uh, my number four comic is The Wicked and the Divine by Kieran Gillen on writing duties, Jamie McKelvey on art, and Matt Wilson on color. And probably you've heard of The Wicked and the Divine before. It's a pretty hot property. It's probably one of the most popular independent comics, I would imagine. And especially if you're into the kind of you're into the the sort of if you're into the stuff we like yeah if you're into the stuff we like you've probably heard of it the it's been optioned by milk fed criminal masterminds for a tv series that hopefully something will happen with soon so the concept is that there's this group of 12 gods who are reincarnated in new forms every 90 years and the if you're chosen to be reincarnated into a god or changed into a god um you have two years to live essentially you get to be worshipped and revered but you will die in two years the music is very is very intertwined with this the gods are basically like pop stars and rock stars and worshipped as such they do these big performances and there are fan conventions and things built up around it it's it's just a very interesting book and it's a new take on a lot of things that uh gillen and mckelvey have done and touched upon in previous works of theirs the story at the beginning sort of follows this girl named laura who's a super fan of the pantheon which is the gods She's attending a performance by one of the gods and is invited to a sort of meet and greet interview afterwards. And while she's there, some assassins come after Lucifer and a couple of the other gods and Lucifer kills them in retaliation and is then tried for their murder and ends up in jail by... She is joking about her ability to kill the judge, and as she's joking, the judge dies. So everyone assumes that she did it, but she claims that she doesn't, and Laura is the only person who believes her. So Laura kind of starts to investigate and becomes wrapped up in all of the crazy issues um, surrounding the Pantheon and all of the secrets and all of the drama and all of the mystery. It's really cool. It's really intense. My favorite issue of this this year, God, there are so many. Okay. Probably my favorite issue of the book this year is a really interesting look at women on the internet, women in culture, the patriarchy, misogyny, and how we, how the world, I'll say we, how we use our words in such a way that it really destroys people. Um, and it's all about the god Terra. And it was really painful to read, but really interesting. And they did another issue that was all remixes, where the entire, all of the art was built from previous panels in previous comics. That's also super interesting. It's just really well done. You should read it if you are not already. I'm reading it in trade, so I don't think I've gotten to those. I think there's only two trades out right now, and it hasn't gotten that far. But I did really like those. I didn't put them on my list because I saw Kate was talking about it, and it didn't have Shortless Gambit in it, so. <laughs> uh, my number four pick is Roller Girl by Victoria Jameson, which is a standalone graphic novel for the middle grade set. 
about a, a girl named Astrid who gets really into roller derby and wants to go to roller derby camp. And she and her best friend have always done the same stuff together. So she assumes that that her best friend, Nicole, must also be equally obsessed with the roller derby, must get the appeal of this immediately and want to go to roller derby camp with her. But she doesn't. Nicole goes to dance camp instead. So it's partly about this realization that friendships can evolve. And as you age, um, they're, the girls are 12. They're, they're hitting junior high. And so, you know, things are changing. And it's about that. And it's about her love of a new sport. And also how hard she has to work to get to get any good at all at roller derby. And about the kinds of sacrifices she has to make to do that. Also, I love her new roller derby friend that she makes, Uh I forget her real name, but the derby name that her new friend picks is Slay Miserab, and she's this amazing little theater kid who also loves roller derby, and she has a cardboard cutout of Hugh Jackman as Wolverine in her bedroom, and she's like, I don't like, you know, I I don't like him as Wolverine, though. I like him from Les Mis, but this is the only cardboard cutout they had, (laughs) and it's so funny. It's so great. And such a really honest look at this friendship of these girls and, and how it works. And it's really positive and fun. And it's, you know, it's a great read like for fans of Raina Telgemeier, but also anybody. Check it out. So good. It's on my list. It's about friendship. My next best book of the best comic of the year is Witches, uh, written by Scott Snyder with uh, Jock on art and Matt Hollingsworth on colors. Witches follows a girl named Sailor who is moving with her family to another town after weird, unexplained things happened in her last town. She had been bullied, and the bully sort of forced her to come out into the woods one night, and something happened in the woods, and Sailor escaped, and Annie died, uh, disappeared. So everyone kind of has been spreading these rumors that Sailor killed her and they get to the point where they're so pervasive that the family decides to move to, I believe, the mother's hometown from her childhood. And weird things start happening there, too. There are these creatures in the woods that seem to be coming after Sailor. There's all of these weird warnings from people in town. And it's just... it's really creepy the art is intensely creepy and the colors on this book are amazing just beyond anything like the level of of detail and weirdness and atmosphere that goes into the colors is fantastic it's very scary it's definitely gruesome in parts but it's really fantastic and if you like creepy things and you haven't been reading it i definitely recommend picking it up I don't like creepy things, but uh, my number three pick is a little bit creepy as well. Uh, it's Sandman Overture by Neil Gaiman with art by J.H. Williams III. I love the Sandman series. It was the first comic, graphic novel, whatever series that I really ever read and got into, and I love it. And so I was very excited, no matter what, to have more Sandman and... This, in some ways, is a prequel to the entire run of Sandman, but also because they're endless, like, time's a little weird. You know, if, honestly, like, if you love Sandman, you've probably already read this. And if you don't, I would not necessarily recommend that you start with this. I think it would probably be a little confusing 
confusing but I don't know maybe not whatever uh and then the art is gorgeous like I really love J.H. Williams art on Batwoman and it's so beautiful and painterly and it's so perfect for this really like cosmic level story that's happening really great my number two uh best comic that I read this year is The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl uh, with Ryan North on story, Erica Henderson on art, and Rico Renzi on color. And I'm not going to talk too much about this because I know that Renata has it on her list and we'll probably go into more detail. That's right, I will. (laughs) But The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl follows Doreen Green, aka Squirrel Girl, as she decides to take some time off from avenging (laughs) and get her college degree. She's going to live in the dorms, and she's going to be a mild-mannered citizen and not Squirrel Girl, except, of course, that doesn't happen. So Squirrel Girl kind of has it became sort of a punchline in a lot of comics because through various things over the years, she managed to beat lots of villains in fights, which gave her like a crazy high rating levels on the scales that they use officially to like rate the strength and the intelligence and the cunning and da 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 of all of the Marvel superheroes. And Ryan and Erica have taken this and run with it. And it's a lot of fun. And it's so, so funny and great. And I'm going to leave it off there <laughs> because I know Renata's going to say a lot more. I guess the one other thing I will say is that Erica Henderson is the perfect artist for this book. Her style is so perfectly suited for Doreen and her friends and the kind of like goofy and heartfelt feelings that the stories inspire. Yeah, it's cool. All right. Uh, Well, my number two pick is Ms. Marvel by G. Willow Wilson and art by Adrian Alfona. At this point, I feel like her run, it's a little bit of old news. I think people probably already know how awesome it is, but I didn't pick it up until this year. And I love it. It's so fun and so empowering. And it really like captures, I think, all that's best about millennials. And um, I think especially the, the, the arc where the teens have like volunteered themselves to be basically like drained as human batteries for... I forget who or why now, and it doesn't matter. They volunteered themselves for this because they believe that, like, the, their generation is ruined, and they think this is the only way that they can give back, and Ms. Marvel's like, hell no, we can do... She doesn't say hell no, because she's nicer than that. But she's like, no, we can do better than this, and I think it's just, like, really what I like most about, like, a good superhero comic and a good teenage girl hero, and it's just so great. I also love this book and 100% co-sign this. Uh, The only reason that it's not on my list is because I saw it was on Renata's and I read so many good comics this year that it was really hard to limit it to five as it is, so. And also, I mean, yeah, it's so popular. I feel like if you're interested in comics at all, you probably already are reading Ms. Marvel, but if you're not, I don't know why not. Oh, and I will say to now, probably should have said this at the top of the comic section, but I was distracted by comets. <laughs> I only put books, I think, that I started reading this year. I think with the exception of Wictiv, because I'm still reading Lumberjanes. I'm still reading Captain Marvel. I'm still reading all of the books that I talked about last year, but 
it would be stupid if my top five was exactly the same because <laughs> I'm still reading all my favorite books. Right. Um, same. So I purposely picked books I didn't talk about last year, but I am still reading and enjoying probably everything that I mentioned. Also, last year, uh, last year I shocked Kate by saying I had not read Lumberjanes. I've read it now. She's right. It was awesome. But I didn't fully put it on my list because Kate talked about it last year. But just in case you were concerned that I had not gotten around to reading Lumberjanes, don't worry. I did. You are right. <laughs> It's great. So uh, my number one comic of the year, which was another comic that I started reading this year, is Bitch Planet by Kelly Sue DeConnick, Valentine DeLandro, and Color by Chris Peters. And the issue that I'm talking about in particular uh, is a guest issue by Robert Wilson IV um, on art for that one. And uh, you've probably heard about Bitch Planet if you run in the same internet circles as us. But it is just a fantastic piece of work from this team. It's amazing. It's game-changing. I first heard Kelly Sue talking about it at Dragon Con a couple years ago. Not this Dragon Con that happened in 2015. Dragon Con 2014. And she, the way she talked about it was different than I imagined what it would be. And it's just so great. I had such high expectations for it to the point where I think when I was on my way to the comic shop to pick up issue number one, I had texted my friend Erica and said, like, I'm afraid to read this comic because it's, if it's not as good as I want it to be in my heart, I'll be super disappointed forever. <laughs> and it was. It was that good. Mm-hmm. And the issues since have been better every issue. The first trade is either out or it's about to come out. It's out. Yeah. It's so this, the story of Bitch Planet is that um, it's a dystopian near future where essentially women had come to, to power and had fucked up. So the solution was that women are turned into secondary citizens and that the patriarchy is super ramped up and in charge and women exist to be pretty and supply people with babies and that is it. And if you cannot fit into those constraints, then you are non-compliant. And people who are non-compliant to certain degrees where they are unwilling to fix what's wrong with them are sent to off-world prisons, essentially. And colloquially, these are called, or this prison is called Bitch Planet. And the story of Bitch Planet follows a group of inmates inside, and it's just so good. There's so much happening on every page that's just, like, gets right to the heart of you. It's awful. It's awful. But it's amazing in its awfulness. And then if you read the single issues, Kelly Sue's also curating essays in the back of each one from notable um, female writers and internet people and all sorts of things. And they're really great. They're really interesting looks from different perspectives on feminism and misogyny and the internet and our culture and... They're really great. You should be reading this. It's so fantastic. The back matter is so fantastic. The art is so fantastic. The colors are amazing. It's great. And I love it. I'm also I'm also reading it and I also love it. But for, as described before, I didn't put it on my list because it's on Kate's list. But she's right. It's great. So I'm going to read a little bit from issue three. 
issue three kind of steps outside of the main arc and is a spotlight issue on the character Penny Roll, uh, who is this excellent, kick-ass, self-assured, awesome, black obese woman. And she's so great. And as a fat woman, reading this issue, like, I cried. And I can't capture that in just reading, like, the two pages that I'm going to read. But, like, absolutely, it was amazing. Okay, so I'm going to read a couple pages from this. Uh, it's very hard to read comics on a podcast mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Uh, so we'll have actual excerpts from these comics, the ones that we're reading, up on the website for you to take a look at and actually see like the amazing art and colors and design of these books. And until then, I'm just going to do my best to like strangely narrate what's happening on the page. So the, the open of this issue is Penny standing in front of one of the prison doors And the narration is, I can't see you, but I feel you judging me. The next page, Penny is facing a wall of television screens that are all the male, um, primarily white men in charge of the prison who are grilling her on why she's there. Next case, Penelope Leona Roll, age 22, District 42, habitual offender. Insubordination, assault, assault, assault repeated citations for aesthetic offenses, capillary disfigurement, and wanton obesity. Good God, woman. What have you done to yourself? Penelope, do you know why you're here? You're being given a chance, Penelope. A thank you would be nice. Penelope, your fathers love you. It pains us to see you like this. All we want to do is help you. And yeah, I'll stop there just because that's three whole pages, but it's just really good. You should read it. It's really, really good. Yeah. And uh, we'll have we'll have scans of these up on the website so you can really see the art and see how it plays together because Kate's right, it's hard and kind of dumb to read comics on a podcast, but whatever. That's what we're doing. <laughs> so my number one comic of the year is Unbeatable Squirrel Girl by Ryan North and Erica Henderson. And Kate, uh, Kate already told you about it. I've been book talking this to junior high kids, and it's really great because it lets me like start some shit with them. Because I started off by asking them like, "Who do you guys think would win if all the superheroes were fighting for some reason?" And they're always like, Batman, Superman, Wolverine, whatever. And then I'm like, nope, it's Squirrel Girl. And then they all get real mad at me and it's the best. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I would definitely recommend Squirrel Girl if you want to make some junior high kids mad at you. And also for other reasons. And it's just, I love, I've loved Ryan North's dinosaur comics for a long time. It's very in tune with my sense of humor. And honestly, probably, like, was really formative for my sense of humor and a lot of, like, there are definitely still stylistic things that I do. And I'm like, mm, this is me being a dinosaur comic right now. <laughs> uh, very influential to me. Very funny. And I love, you You might have picked up on that. I love cats. And I love it when there's a cat in a comic. So this has got squirrels and cats. What could be better? I'm going to read just a little bit from when Doreen is moving into her dorm room and her roommate Nancy has a cat. And so what we see in the panels, it's Doreen coming into the room with a bunch of boxes and Nancy sitting at the laptop and her cat is sitting on the bed. And so Nancy says, hey, you must be Doreen. I'm Nancy Whitehead. Oh, hi. 
sorry, I didn't know any anyone else was here yet. I Here's what you need to know. There are three things you can do to get me to hate you, Doreen. Make fun of my last name, criticize how I decorate, or talk smack about Mew. And then it shows, she's got a bunch of knitting posters, and it shows Mew the cat. Doreen says, Mew is the kitten? Mew is the kitten. I thought pets weren't allowed in the dorm. Obeying an unjust law is itself unjust. She's cute. She's the most important thing in my life. And then another thing I love about Squirrel Girl is there's a tiny joke printed along the bottom of each page. And I really love this tiny joke, so I'm going to read it to you. Did you know Mew is named after Muner, which is the name of Cat Thor's hammer? Did you also know Cat Thor is a character in Nancy's fan fiction? Cat Thor, cat god of cat thunder? <laughs> It's so good. Um, I'm going to post a few more panels of that online so you can take a look. I'm not going to read anymore because it's kind of silly to do. But it's so funny and it's so good. And squirrels. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> and now we've got to move on to our worst comics. It's true. So my worst comic is, as happens with this, not necessarily a bad comic. I did generally like this series. It's Lock and Key by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. Lock and Key is a comic that whenever people recommend horror comics is right near the top. And I did generally like it. It's an interesting story. It managed to convey a non-chronological timeline pretty well. Um, I thought it was engaging. The art's really good. But, you know, it wasn't as great as I wanted it to be after hearing people hype it up to me for a long time. And parts of it just seemed, like, not great Uh, in the beginning. Like, I feel like it's one of those things that got better as it went on. But the first few issues, I was kind of like, eh. And if I hadn't bought it in a trade, I probably would have stopped there. But I did have the first trade. So I read through the whole thing and then said, oh, okay, I'll read through the other trade. But it's um, the story of, well, I guess I I will say what the story is in publishing chronological order. So the story starts with the Locke family moving to a new house. And through flashbacks, we find out that their father had been murdered. And so the kids, Tyler, Kinsey, and Bode, move across the country with their mother and... They move into this thing called the Key House and start discovering that it's very strange. There's a lot of weird secrets. There's a lot of strange things going on. And essentially, this magical iron stuff that was created by essentially dead demons has been turned into keys by an old lock ancestor and... The keys can do various things, and one of them seals the entrance to the demon dimension. And after a bunch of demons got out, one of them stayed and, you know, managed to stay in this dimension and is is essentially trying to find the one key that will open the door between the two dimensions. And one of the other things is that you can only use the keys before you turn 18. Uh, Once you turn 18, you can't, I think, see the doors anymore or use the keys or anything like that. So it's an interesting story. I liked it in general. It was not, the beginning was not as strong as I wanted. And I read a lot of really good comics this year. 
So, yeah, that's basically why it's my least favorite. And I'll read a little bit of it. So this is a page from issue one. It's uh, the people who have murdered the father of the Locke family. The kids came home from school and sort of interrupted them and then were on the run. So the guy's coming down the stairs into this creepy dark basement and says, come on, Ty, don't play hide and seek with me. Where are you? I'm not going to kill you. I want to help you. He keeps walking through the basement and Tyler is hidden um, around the corner. I did this for you. Remember, we talked about it. That time I said I wanted to kill your kill my dad. And you said, you know what you said. I felt a connection. I felt like and then um, Tyler comes out and smashes his head in with a brick. And there's like two pages of brick head smashing and gun firing and blood and all sorts of shit so yeah cool all right well my worst comic of the year is well i think it's actually bad it's definitely actually something that i did not like at all and uh i'm gonna need to go into a little bit of backstory here but it the comic is arrow volume one by mark guggenheim um and andrew kreisberg and mike grell and the backstory is that I went to visit a friend of mine last year and the weather was shitty and so we just stayed inside the whole time and we decided we wanted to watch a show together that neither of us had seen before. So we binge watched, I think, all of Arrow season one together. And as you might know, I'm much more of a Marvel person, so I wasn't really familiar with the Green Arrow character very much at all before watching the show. But we got pretty into it and so I decided I would maybe try to read some of the comics. And I read... Volume 1 of the New 52 Green Arrow, and I didn't like it, and I I quickly realized, if you're not familiar at all with Green Arrow, he's basically kind of like Batman, but he uses a bow and arrow. You know, he's, Oliver Queen is like a rich playboy, but then he's got a tortured past, and so he puts on green stuff and shoots arrows at people, and it's very sad about it. And the show is really like two different shows, because I guess in in the show timeline five years before the now of the show oliver queen was shipwrecked on this weird island and that's where he learned all his archery skills and all this other weird shit happened on this island for five years and so we call it flashback island there's flashback island and then the now of the show is kind of like a a batman but with arrows situation and so I really do not give a shit about Flashback Island. I only really like the present day stuff. And I don't really like Oliver Queen. Like, what I like about the show is all the side characters, especially Felicity Smoke, who's kind of... She worked for him at, at Queen Consolidated as his, like, technology girl Friday. And she figures out that he's the Green Arrow. So now she helps him in, like, his Arrow Cave with all his high-tech uh, superhero stuff and she's awesome Felicity is the best and then the second best is John Diggle who was Oliver Queen's bodyguard and then he also found out that Oliver Queen is Green Arrow so now he also kind of helps out as a sidekick type person and Felicity and Diggle are the best and when I started reading the new 52 Green Arrow I realized that they were characters created for the show, I guess. They're not actually in the comics. So I was like, fuck this. I don't care about Oliver Queen. I'm not reading this. <laughs> and then I guess the DC people kind of figured out 
that that was happening. So this new, it's specifically tied into the show. And so I heard about that. I saw that and I was like, oh, great. They figured it out. They figured out that I want Felicity and Diggle. And so I checked it out and I was like, no, there's no Felicity in it. And she's the best. There's a little bit of Diggle, but not enough. It's like 50% flashback island shit, which is so boring and is the worst. And it is just basically none of what I like about the show and just all the stuff that I don't like in concentrated form. And so boo to it. Um, and then I also started watching The Flash, which is sort of like a tie-in to Arrow or the connected kind of. The Flash is so much more fun and so much better than Arrow. I like it so much more. And they also d- did one of those TV tie-in comics for Flash, and so I read that. And Felicity's in the Flash comic, and it's not even her show. They just, like, <laughs> that's how much better Flash is than Arrow. They figured out that Felicity's the best, and they put her in there. <laughs> so... I'm just going to read the tiniest little bit of this because I just cannot get it together to care enough to read more of it. So it's Oliver Queen, you know, playboy billionaire, whatever, being pulled over by a police officer in his fancy green car. And the police officer says, if you think your family connections are going to... And then his phone rings and he says, hello? What? Of course I want to make detective, but yes, sir. And then he looks at Oliver Queen kind of defeated and says, drive safe. And then Oliver Queen says, not a chance, and drives off very quickly. Because Oliver Queen is the fucking worst. He's a nightmare. And I just want to comic about Felicity. And no, and only the Flash will give it to me, I guess. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Thank you. So that's the worst. That's it. We made it through our, our top lists and worst lists of 2015. Hurrah. Yay. So uh, thank you all again, best listeners, for listening to our opinions about books. We hope that you've heard about something that you'd like to read or maybe heard about something and thought we were real dumb for thinking it. Whatever you might have gotten out of this episode, we hope that you will follow us on Twitter at Worst Bestseller or like us on Facebook at Worst Bestseller spelled normally and tell us what you thought. You can also tell us what you thought via iTunes or iTunes or Stitcher rating and reviews i don't know if that grammatically all agrees with each other but whatever i was trying to do a good segue and i just fucked it all up (laughs) Uh, if you didn't like that segue you can tweet at kate personally at 14 across and hold her accountable for it (laughs) if you feel bad that renata has to do a podcast with me twice a month you can express those sympathies at renata snacks uh you can visit us online at worstbestsellers.com and see uh, all of these lists and other lists and just all kinds of things on that website especially for the comics we do recommend that you go and look at the comics panels that we'll have up there so you can really get a better sense of the comics especially the good one maybe just don't even look at that arrow comic because who gives a shit about oliver queen not me <laughs> We'll be back in two weeks with a a special episode. We're talking about Twilight again, guys. You can't stop us. This will be the new life and death gender swapped Twilight novella that came out early. I don't think it's a novella. I think it's the whole... I guess we'll find out. Yeah. But it'll be a special episode with a whole bunch of different formatting and surprises. So tune in for... I don't think we're going to play the drinking game, but I might be drunk. (laughs) (laughs) So, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Happy holidays. (laughs) 
super racist homophobic smurfs <laughs>